Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us. And music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of <laughs> a dream. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right. Yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Could have run that as the open. open. Very true. Very quick on the trigger. Uh, thanks to Randy Moore putting that together here on Cinephile. Brand new open. Those were our stories from Sundance. Thanks to all those who listened the last couple of times for all those Sundance stories. Normally, I would begin with a review from a critic, but I had to open with this. Who is this from, you ask? Marvel's Black Panther is a masterpiece of movie making, a film that succeeds on multiple levels, touching hearts and opening minds, all while entertaining millions of people and far exceeding the loftiest box office projections. This groundbreaking movie opened to a record-breaking $242 million in domestic box office over the holiday weekend and delivered the second-highest four-day opening in movie history. That's not from Peter Travers. It's from Bob Iger, Disney president, sending that to all of us. Yes, Black Panther. Who cares? I only gave it two and a half maple leaves. Go see it again. Our 401k skyrocketing. Thanks to Ryan Coogler's masterpiece, Black Panther, in theaters now. As always, help us out. Go to iTunes and please give Cinephile a review. I rank my movies at a four Maple Leafs. You can rank it at a five stars. And then please write some reviews. I try to read them all. I appreciate all of you do them. Rick Pash, we're passing on a couple here. Beantown 33, fun and sincere. Nice to get a podcast that isn't cynical or seeming to be fake and snobbery. Adnan clearly loves films, gives you a great feel for the movie without taking 30 minutes to do it. Definitely worth subscribing to. Thank you, sir. And Jen 1976, entertaining and passionate. One of the few hosts I could take on my beloved Mike and Mike show. Okay, I'll scroll to that part. I just listened to the first three episodes of Cinephile. They're excellent, good mix of personal stories, discussion of actors, lifetime works, and new movie reviews. His passion for movies is clear. So thanks so much for those reviews. As Dan had previously suggested, review each segment if you like. Just my understanding is the more you review, the more it helps us out. Subscribe, unsubscribe, and then resubscribe. It's not only my dream coming true here, going to the Oscars for the second time, but also Dan Stanzik, we can officially say we'll be along for the party. Did you get a tux yet? You're going to be there. Yeah, blacktux.com. Never worn a tux in my life. Kind of excited, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, what do I need to know? Give me the how-to. I was going to say, I don't think you're alone because I'm with you on that. I had never bought a tux prior to last year as well, and I'm seven years older than you, so... Uh, listen, it's going to be an unbelievable event. The biggest thing, as I told you last year, you just can't have your phone. Like, it's going to be so weird. You just want to be able to take pictures, stream, video, and they're like, no, 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 no. Like, there's Oscar police there. But you're going to have a whale of a time. You're going to a wedding, so you're already going to be in California. Yeah, a wedding about uh, 100 miles east of L.A. in Palm Springs. I thought that was in Florida. It's in the L.A. area. Who knew? Nice. Um, yeah, so then I'll... I'll Drive there, get my credential on Friday, drive back there Sunday, and uh, see what happens. So the next cinephile you're going to hear, it's going to be me, Dan, and Ben Lyons from the Kodak Theater. We're going to knock one out as if it's literally the Oscars ends. Here's 10 minutes, and then we'll do more after that. So looking forward to that, and Dan's first time on the red carpet. Passmore, we'll get you hooked up next year. Reviews of films coming up. Roman J. Israel, Girls Trip. My man, Max Bredos, who is thankfully staying with ESPN, but he's going out to L.A. So one of the last few times he's going to be here in Connecticut. He loves movies. He also does unbelievable impressions. So he's going to stop by as well. And we saw all the shorts. If you're a real movie lover, all the shorts, I saw them all. Live action, all the ones that are nominated for the Academy Award. Live action, animation, and documentary shorts. Passport, I think, has seen all of them as well. 
All but documentary. Have all not but documentary. documentaries and, yet. And Dan also saw animation. And, so this is great. This is ideally what it is. All of us can see it. We can all banter together. Which ones we liked, which ones we didn't like. All that more coming up. Scorsese's Masterclass, hours upon hours. For me, it was a rapturous symphony. He goes through every part of the business of filmmaking, whether it's cinematography, whether it's editing, whether it's working with actors, whether it's marketing your film. It's absolutely invaluable and indispensable. If you're a wannabe filmmaker, you have to take it. If you just love movies, if you're a cinephile like me, you should take it. If you just love Scorsese and just like the way he talks and his staccato delivery, then you should take it. Energy upon energy and so much insight from the master. Rather than me go through every section, what we'll do is this. Dan and Ricky, you guys just give me a Scorsese movie, and I'll give you a story or two that he tells about that film. Ricky, which one would you like first? Uh, let's start with the biggest one, Goodfellas. So Goodfellas, the best story he tells from Goodfellas is this, which I did not know. He said when he was growing up, he always thought that they played the music on set. Because he goes, I used to, I, he loved those westerns as a kid, right? When he was a kid, he would go his mom or his dad, and he goes, oh, I love Duel in the Sun. He always talks about Duel in the Sun. And, of course, he loves The Searchers, which in many ways was a template for Taxi Driver. But Marty goes, when I would watch these movies, especially the ones in the 60s, I thought that they had, like, music playing, and I thought it was so orchestrated. And I was amazed when I found out, no, they do that in post. So he said, with a movie like Mean Streets, you know, I had so much music in there. I go, I wish that Harvey could hear the Ronettes when we're shooting it. So on Goodfellas, specifically for that Layla sequence, because when you start to see all the bodies pop up, I, I specifically said you have to have the music playing because I want my camera operators and Michael Bauhaus, who's the director of photography, I want the dolly to completely track along with the music. It has to fit the notes. So this is not, he goes, oftentimes I hear filmmakers say we shot it and then found the music. He goes, no, for me, I always have the music in my head. Specifically, when De Niro, that scene where Sunshine of Your Love is playing, he's smoking the cigarette when he knows he's going to kill Maury. He goes, that's another time I knew I had to have that song. And when we were editing it, we just saw a little flicker, a little gleam in Bob's eye. And we said, if we really slow it down, it's really going to hit with that guitar riff. So Goodfellas, he said, for many ways for me, it was like this orchestrated music video. And he said, the biggest key for me was having Layla playing on set while we were shooting it and Sunshine of Your Love crafting it to De Niro's movements and knowing exactly what speed to shoot it at with the slow motion. That to me was very interesting. All right, you know where I'm going with this. Just for my cousin Colin and his wife Meg, big fans of the podcast. She's pregnant, by the way. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations to Meg and Colin. Shutter Island. There's almost zero mention of Shutter Island. <laughs> All right, Hugo. It's done. It's very clear which movies Marty cares most about, okay? There's a lot of Mean Streets. There's a lot of Goodfellas. There's a lot of Raging Bull. There's a lot of Taxi Driver. There is zero mention of The Color of Money. There is zero mention of Kundun. <laughs> There is zero mention of those documentaries I've been reviewing recently. Shutter Island, he only tells one story, which is that he just how much he loves Ben Kingsley. So this will dovetail into Hugo as well, which he doesn't talk about much either. He just said how Ben Kingsley is the type of actor that once he kind of figures out the outside, the inside comes easily. So he said with Hugo, Georges Méliès, like we knew his films, but I didn't know much about him. You see a picture. But he goes, Ben just kind of knew the way the mustache and the look of it felt right. He goes, similarly, the psychologist in Shutter Island he knew how to play that character, and, and he's the type of actor that sets the tempo. Because I found that on both those movies, Kingsley set the tempo. So Leo and Ruffalo and all the other actors in Sharon were kind of following Kingsley's lead. And he goes, it's interesting as a director, you're the master conductor, but actors, you also need somebody who's like the alpha male. Like there's the actor everyone looks to. It's like Paul Thomas Anderson said about Phantom Threat. He goes, you know, to Vicky Kreps, what's it like working with Daniel Day-Lewis? Well, Daniel's Daniel. Like, you know, he's a stud. Like, he, he has presence. So you get a rise to him. That's all he says about Ben Kingsley and Shutterround. Sorry, Colin, I wish there was more. He's, it's not one of Marty's favorites. Ricky, which one for you? The Aviator. Aviator, he talks about, it's interesting. Again, he said the sequences that, you know, he'd always wanted to shoot, like, 
movies about movies. So he said it was really interesting having to shoot that stuff, you know, when, when Leo was making Hell's Angels and Howard Hughes was wrapped up. And he goes, that for me was a ton of fun. And also that crash sequence, you know, Spielberg's one of his closest friends. And he goes, I always wished I could do like a Spielberg sequence. He goes, like, I could never do E.T. or Jurassic Park. I don't know how to do those those movies. Uh, he said, so that crash, though, he really kind of thought, you know, how would Spielberg do it? And he, I think he solicited Spielberg's help a little bit with how to edit it and shoot it and put it all together. So the aviator, he said, particularly the crash sequence and just from the he loves that time period. He really loves history, uh, which is clearly why he's made so many period pieces, especially of late. That's what his thoughts were on the aviator. All right. What about uh, the King of Comedy, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull? Let's just knock those out. All right. So King of Comedy is really interesting because he said, you know, this was De Niro's passion project. And again, they kind of had to work from the outside in. They couldn't figure out what the guy looked like. They knew who these guys were because at that point, they were big stars after Raging Bull. And obviously, they'd made Taxi Driver and Mean Street. So Bob and Marty both knew what celebrity culture was like. But they go, who are these people uh, who call our assistants? Who are these people who send in these notes? And they said they were with the costumes there. They're walking the streets of New York, I think around 42nd Street, and they saw a mannequin. And he goes, and De Niro hit him. He goes, oh, my God, that's Rupert Pupkin. And he said, oh, wow. And he goes, the exact outfit. Like, literally, they went to the store. They go, we want everything. Like, no, no, I want the jacket. I want the tie. I want the face. Like, he goes, they knew the exact way Bob wanted the mustache. He goes, the mustache is a little bit longer on one side than the other, just like the mannequin. That's critical. And he goes, that jacket, that's what Rupert's going to wear when he kidnaps Jerry Lewis and goes on, on his talk show. And the bow tie and the hair, he goes, oh, my God, it's perfect. <laughs> because it was such a moment of synchronicity that they knew they had the character once they had the look of him in The King of Comedy. Taxi Driver, two good ones. That great tracking shot after Travis obliterates everybody, it took them, he said, two to three months. Eight to, the tenement building says this was right where New York was starting to get a little gentrified. So he goes, we, actually, we didn't have to search for squalor, but you could feel it start to shift. And he says, so that tenement building was particularly woeful and just being torn down. And just to construct it, like, you know, that's that's a very exquisite overhead tracking shot. He said it took like two months just to finally get it orchestrated and figure out how to to block it. And the day of, because there was shooting challenges and budget and they had something else to do, they had 45 minutes to get a very difficult tracking shot. And he repeats it to the audience in this master class. He goes, two months of work and we've got 45 minutes to get the shot. And he goes, thankfully, we got it in two takes. But he goes, that's the pressure of filmmaking. That's what happens. You think you've got all the time in the world and all of a sudden they did. No, go. You got to get it now. And that's it. Speak now. Forever hold your peace. Because the producer's always there on set. The budgets, we got to go, we got to go. And you're going, oh, my God. The fake was able to work out. The other thing I really loved about Taxi Driver, he said, we weren't sure how to market it. How in the world do you market this movie? He said, when people would ask us about it, Bob and I could never explain what we loved about it. We just said we feel a real connection to it. When Paul Schrader was asked, why would you write this script? He would explain it. It was like a caged animal. It just came out of me. Because I had no money. I was sleeping in my car. My wife had left me. I was very sick. I was in the hospital. And that's where this metaphor came with this taxi cab as a metaphor for loneliness. And he goes, I literally hunkered down for 10 days. I wrote the entire script. So they're asking De Niro, Marty, well, how, how, how do we sell this? It's about a young man and loneliness and urban alienation. Like, how do you sell that? And one of the studio people, Marty, this thing, people try to discredit the studio people. They know. He goes, that's the shot. They were going through pictures. And the shot is the poster of Taxi Driver. And it's of De Niro walking down the street in New York with his head down. And they've got like the triple X theater in the back. And it's just a New York street. And Marty and Bob were like, well, I, how is that going to sell anything? It's just a shot of Bob walking down the street. And he goes, no, that's, that's a really powerful image. And he goes, sometimes you can't use the words why, but you can just, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. You go, that's a powerful image. People are going to see that poster and go, 
That's interesting. I'd like to see more of that. And they were stunned. They go like, no, it's just Bob standing on a street. I don't get it. And he goes, but it really sold the movie. He said, we got, we got tests back afterwards and people said, well, I heard a little bit about it. Yeah. I heard it means a little bit. Oh, De Niro won an Oscar for Godfather too, but I love that poster. And then the tagline is a great one. It's one of my favorites on every city on every street. There's a nobody who dreams of being a somebody. So you put that line with that poster and all of a sudden it sold it. He goes, it's one of the biggest shocks in my career that Taxi Driver was a box office hit. He goes, when Schrader called me that night, because they're around the block in New York. I said, what? This movie's going to make money? He's like, yeah, seriously. Raging Bull, biggest thing people always wonder, why is it in black and white? He said at the time they were very concerned about color restoration. And he was watching an old boxing movie with Michael Powell, his dear friend, who did the red shoes, Powell and Pressburger. And he said they were looking at some dailies of De Niro, and he goes, the color's off. The red's not the right red. And he goes, Marty, you can't make a boxing movie and you're showing vintage stuff in the 1950s and people are going to say, but the red is off. The red doesn't look right. And he goes, whenever you think about stuff from that era, it's always in black and white. So you, you might as well just shoot it in black and white. And he goes, okay, maybe I'll just shoot the boxing scenes in black and white. Everything else is color. He goes, no, anytime, if, if you put it in black and white, you think of vintage newsreel boxing, that's black and white. If you think of this guy in this tenement building, it's going to be black and white. Just go the whole thing. And the studio was very averse, as you can imagine. They go black and white. Like, black and white movies do not market well. Like, people are not fired up to go watch the, the, the latest black and white movie at the multiplex in 1980. He said, but it was because he was worried about the color restoration and film preservation is a huge pet project, of course, as his career. And it was because the gloves were off that that's why he felt so impassioned he had to do it. And he goes, I couldn't imagine that movie in color. Critical decision. Thankfully, the studio agreed with him on it. I had to watch Roman J. Israel because Denzel Washington is nominated for Best Actor, and it is a mess. Like, what a terrible movie. I saw it while I was in Hollywood shooting that stuff for the Oscars All Access. And they said to me, hey, you've seen all the films, right? And I said, I've seen all the Best Picture nominees. I've seen all the acting nominees. I got one left. You want to take a guess? They go, I go, Roman J. Israel, and it's playing at 2.30 at the Arclight, which is in Hollywood. They go, all right. I said, so tomorrow I'll be fully prepped. <laughs> and it's terrible. Like, it, it's it's not even – no, because I, I said to the guy when I'm buying the ticket, I go, you know what I'm doing here? I go, he goes, what's that? I go, I've seen all the nominees. This is the last one for me. I go, how bad is this movie? He goes, ah, he goes, listen, some people didn't like it, but most people agree Denzel Washington's really good. I said, yeah? He goes, yeah. I go, cause Rotten Tomatoes got it 50%. That, that's like critics. And then the audience is bad. And, and it, I, I, no, I don't think, I don't think anything's gonna be good. He goes, well, if you have that approach, I go, no, listen, I'm open minded. I'm just telling you, I don't think it's gonna be a good movie. And here's the thing with Denzel, cause that's what he walked in. He goes, what do you think? He goes, Denzel was good, right? I go, no. I said, no. The movie, first of all, is a mess. And I love Dan Gilroy. Nightcrawler is a great movie. But it's all over the place in terms of tone. One, I thought it was set in the 70s. Just by his look and costume and musical choices, no, it's current day. Because midway through, he says to the girl that he's attracted to, I called you an Uber. I go, wait, this movie's set in present day? And he knows how to do Uber? This guy does it. I'm stuck in Park City, Utah. I don't know how to do it. This this high-functioning guy? <laughs> like, really? Okay. And secondly, I think this is what happens. The Academy goes, all right, Denzel Washington's obviously a tremendous actor. Of course, he's one of the great actors of all time. But they love when actors do something different. So he's got a wig. Oh, his character's high-functioning. He's on the spectrum, a little bit of autism. Okay, underdog, glasses, uh, clothes, put on weight for the role. Like, all these things are attractive to the Academy because they say, okay, it's an actor not doing what his usual thing is. And as Passmore, I will continue to contend, although Scott Feinberg challenges me on this because he says a lot of the voting was already done for best actor by the time Franco's sexual harassment allegations came out. So he doesn't think that that hurts him as much as he thinks. But I still think Me Too obviously had an impact on Franco not getting the nomination. But then why not Hanks getting nominated for The Post? Who, as Dan pointed out, he thought he was fine. And when I talked to Rebecca Keegan of Andy Fair, she goes, he hasn't been nominated for 17 years. He was snubbed for Captain Phillips. He's a really good actor. Like, if you just do want to get Franco in there, 
The Post is a really good movie. Why couldn't they just nominate Tom Hanks? And I'm like, I don't know. If I'm Hanks and I watch Roman J. Israel, I'm like, are you kidding? The ending is laugh out loud bad. It is laughably bad how they try to solve this movie. Colin Farrell's in I had no idea Colin Farrell was in the movie. Ostensibly, he's this lawyer who's trying to fight the good fight. But I'm telling you, watch The Verdict. Watch A Few Good Men. Watch a bunch of other stuff. It was a bad movie. Roman J. Israel. One and a half Maple Leafs. Having said that, here's a surprise for you. Girls Trip was terrific. <laughs> we talked to Malcolm Lee, the director on the podcast last summer, and I saw it on the flight out to Los Angeles. The way back, I saw Atomic Blonde. On the way out there, I saw Girls Trip. Hilarious. And I don't know how much they edit these movies for the plane, but thank God, you know, I had the headphones and the person next to me didn't seem offended by it because it is, it is a hard R. Like, if you'll recall, we asked Malcolm because I'd seen some of the reviews and I said, this movie apparently is, you're pushing the envelope. He's like, oh yeah. And the, the scene stealer is Tiffany Haddish. She is fantastic. My friend Claire Atkins said it's like um, Melissa McCarthy and Bridesmaids. It's the perfect comp. Hilarious. I don't know her work. Apparently, she's great at stand-up. Apparently, Paul Thomas Anderson said he loved the film and he wants to work with her. And now the latest story I read is Tiffany Haddish is going to be in P.T. Anderson's movie at some point. Awesome. She's amazing. She steals the entire movie. Scatological humor. Very profane. Very vulgar. I can only tell you there's a scene. They all go to New Orleans for this girl's trip. And I can tell you, there's a scene where they're ziplining, which is one of the filthiest scenes I've seen in a while, and also one of the funniest, as I was laughing on the airplane. Girls Trip, Three Maple Leafs, a surprisingly very funny movie, and female empowerment, other themes like that as well. But honestly, I'm just here for the jokes, and it more than delivered in that respect. Let's fire through some documentaries. Icarus is fantastic. It's currently available on Netflix. It tells the story of Brian Fogel. A documentarian who is a cyclist, and he's just curious about the impact of performance-enhancing drugs. So he wants to take some PEDs to see how it'll impact his performance. And he gets hooked up with a guy named Grigory Rodchenkov, who is a Russian doctor who is quite boastful about the fact he's been involved with Russian doping for years. I'm sure I can help you. I can get you some good stuff. And so the story, you think, is about just how PEDs can influence an athlete. And then it takes a drastic right turn, and it ends up being a story about Rodchenkov, how he ends up being implicated in these Russian doping scandals, and that's why now we have the Olympic athletes from Russia, not Team Russia, and Rodchenkov is a mastermind of all this Russian doping that was going on for decades, and is now a whistleblower, and he's calling out Putin and all these people, and now you've got a really dramatic, tense movie. So I love a documentary that completely upends your expectations, and that's what Icarus does. I give it three and a half Maple Leafs. I thought it was terrific. Dan, I tossed the floor to you. What did you think of Icarus? I don't have much more to say. I thought it was really good. I thought it was really interesting. Um, like you said, I had been told the premise of this guy who was a cyclist, and it turns into this whole, he blew the lid off the Russian doping thing. Right. It's crazy. I mean, it just takes you step by step how he did it with these athletes, and it's a relevant story to today when you still have a Russian curler who's tested positive for PEDs. It is totally worth your time, even if you're not a documentary fan, which I am not a big documentary guy. Yeah. But it's really, really well done. Rodchenkov, a fascinating central character, because he comes across as kind of oafish, kind of goofy. He's playing with the dogs, which your dog's name. And then he becomes a very tragic character. You see the fact when he's FaceTiming with his wife and kids, he's not sure if he's ever going to see them again. He's shirtless a lot, too. I'll <laughs> warn everybody out there. Oddly shirtless for most of the movie. Which I would argue makes him a little more likable as well, because he just doesn't care. That he's not nearly as sculpted as these athletes who he's making perform at a high level. But yeah, really good movie. One that was disappointing is called Abacus. That's from Steve James. I'm so happy Steve James is up for an Oscar. You're wondering who's that? He's the guy who did Hoop Dreams, who was memorably snubbed. That movie came out in 1994, the best basketball movie I've ever seen, one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. 
And this movie, Abacus, is about a small Chinese-American bank, which was one of the few banks with with all the um, malfeasance which occurred with all the financial institutions. This is one of the few that was actually prosecuted for crimes. And so James really stacks the deck in their favor and points out the fact that the prosecution is being very xenophobic and, quite frankly, racist. And the fact they're targeting this Chinese-American bank and all the big American banks um, escape any sort of wrath. And, in fact, the, the film argues that these people were very naive to what was going on and were not actually corrupt. It sounds a lot more interesting than it is. It's an awfully dry documentary. My buddy Mark Simon, who loves documentaries, also messaged me. He was very disappointed. I'm only going to give it two Maple Leafs. I would be stunned if it wins. I think Icarus is going to win the documentary feature. There's no chance Abacus Small Enough to Jail will win. Like I said, it's a, it's a good premise, and it sounds good, but the movie really stacks the deck, and there's just not much uh, dramatic or narrative involvement. Also, Last Men in Aleppo is up for Best Documentary Feature. That's about the White Helmets. If you recall, last year, one of the shorts was about the White Helmets. Those are the rescue groups in Syria. Last Men in Aleppo is heartbreaking. It's an awfully tough watch. Uh, the movie, the first 10 minutes, it shows three babies being rescued from the rubble in Syria, uh, two of which are alive, one of which is dead. So it's a very tough film to watch, but obviously a very important film to watch because uh, this is clearly ongoing and the White Helmets deserve... I think all the acclaim and um, immense sacrifice that they're doing to try to help out their fellow citizens and rescue all these people. Uh, it doesn't have necessarily a strong narrative focus. Um, it's more of a cinema verite documentary, just showing what these people do and what their daily lives are like, how to survive in a war-torn country um, when your own government is turning against you and the insurgents and the militia and who to trust and who not to, and ultimately being altruistic and trying to help others. Last Men in Aleppo, a very good documentary. does have a chance, I think, maybe winning. I'll give it a three Maple Leafs, and that's currently available as well. Now, as promised, our man Max Bradas, or is it Sean Connery showing up? So we were really excited to get Max Bredos in here. He's one of my closest friends. He does a phenomenal <laughs> job for ESPN. But somehow, I don't know how he did this. I mean, our bookers are unbelievable. Carlton Gillespie is so good. Sean Connery is joining us right now here on Cinephile. Sean, thank you so much for coming on today. Hurry up. I got a, I got a 9.30 tea time. Well, yeah, don't worry. I'll make it quick. I appreciate that. Got places to go, people to see, ladies to meet, martinis to shake, or stir. <laughs> Sean, I'll start with this. I just, I love the untouchables. I'm a little bit tired. I just took the Concorde from Glasgow. <laughs> just so you know, I, I could use a few winks. <laughs> I'll make this quick for you. strong I... Turkish coffee. <laughs> I promise you. Listen, the untouchables, one of my favorite movies. God, I love it. David Mamet script, Brian De Palma directing. I don't remember that. No, no, but did, well, yeah, I guess they maybe weren't. Uh, De Palma's right. Maybe Mamet wasn't allowed on set, but listen. Uh, you know, here endeth the lesson, and, uh, you know, that's the Chicago way. There's so many great lines of dialogue. Racine Avenue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know I know someone who lives there. Can you just give me some of those lines from The Untouchables, yeah. Sean? The way you did it was so good. Well, I don't want to offend anyone. There's a lot of profanity. Well, there's one line he goes, I don't want to make fun of the Italian listeners of Cinefine. No, there's one line he says, because this town stinks like a whorehouse at night. Yes, it does. <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> Smells like a tart's handkerchief. <laughs> well, appropriately. So oh, it's an awful, it's an awful smell. No. I have, I have, I, I try to retain because everything that comes out of my mouth could be viewed as a bit insensitive to one group or the other. Well, it smells listen. like a Bombay sewer, you know. It's well, my, my producer Dan loves The Rock. What can you tell me about Nicolas Cage and working with uh, him and Michael Bay? Uh, Nicolas Cage is, uh, he's an, he's an, he's an okay actor. Constantly late on set, at least as late as I was. Uh, 
Interesting hairpiece, and I'm not going to be. <laughs> no, she... I'm not going to be judgmental because that's, that's all I wear. I had to wear the the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which how that did not get nominated is an absolute farce. So uh, now Nicholas Cage is a real pro, and uh, he uh, he was there when I I came up with the line, "Welcome to the Rock." Yeah. L- last one for you, Sean. What do you think of Daniel Craig as the new Bond? Uh, who the heck is that? <laughs> Daniel Craig. I knew a Patrick Craig used to be a left back for Rangers Football Club. Averages bets. Right footer playing left back. It doesn't make any sense. So I told the manager, pushed him to right midfield. It's the best impression going. Max Bredos as Sean Connery. You can follow Max on Twitter. Yeah. Thanks for the time, Sean. Appreciate it. Oh, yes. We'll get Max back in here now. M. Titanic! M. Bredos, ESPN. Um, I, I, we have so much to talk about because I, yeah, I can I can be me now. No, I was gonna say now you can be you right. again. You're gonna, wanna... you're staying with ESPN, which is the good news. First and foremost, a lot of tweets that people go, wait, Max is leaving. No, no he's leaving. I need to clear that up Great. immediately. He's leaving Connecticut. He's staying with ESPN. First, tell us what you're doing. I want to get that okay. First of all, I say you'd be crazy to leave ESPN. This channel is gonna be doing great things ahead. I want to be part of it. I'm not telling the company line with the ESPN Plus service. That's a big part. So what happened was, you know, you know, sports is gonna be changing here. We're looking forward to the Greenberg Show. And I think there's things where you could kind of look at where you could play your strengths. So there's a new MLS team, LAFC, uh, an incredible ownership group. Now, MLS is not Major League Baseball. It's not the Lakers. It's not the Dodgers. So they don't have a big TV presence. Most MLS teams do don't. But they have this new incredible uh, partnership with YouTube where they want to create content. So in addition to being the broadcaster, I could awesome. help do the YouTube content. So that's exciting. I'll be head of creative content. That sounds frightening because me responsible for stuff. And if LFC is listening to, I'm just putting a, putting on Tom a, a Penn, face. Friend, Tom yeah. Penn, Will Ferrell, Mia Hamm, awesome, uh, Magic Dude. Johnson, Peter Goober, the big uh, team executive. Yeah. I mean, he's gonna be. I'm so looking forward to meeting those guys. So I'll do that. And calling when, matches. I'll be calling matches. Right. We'll do pre and post. We'll right. do shows. We'll have community outreach. I, I'm excited because LA is my home. I'm from Miami, but LA is my home. I spent 15 years there, and uh, then I'll be working for ESPN out of the LA. Whatever they need. And uh, ESPN International, I'm already doing a bunch of stuff. So you could so you're getting the, bored as I keep you, on this. You, you could be on the jump. I'm going to ask to be on the jump. <laughs> That's unbelievable. I'm going to talk to Carrie Champion about <laughs> being on sports. Look, if you need somebody, instead of making all these long phone calls to get someone there and, you know, all these logistics, you go, hey, Max is, is 10 minutes away, and I can go on there in a pinch. But I also want to help create stuff. In LA, with the, they have some really cool uh, people working there, so I think we can do some fun stuff. Nobody's better on soccer than you. You know I'm thrilled for you. We're all really going to miss I'm you. I'm excited, man. I'm thrilled that you're still with the ESPN. You're thrilled. You're thrilled because you're the last <laughs> member of the 2010 class <laughs> in Bristol. You were that. waiting for me to fade away so you could say that and you can put, put that on your gravestone. You and Steve Weissman, January of 2010. Here me and Don Bell, May of 2010. Sarah Walsh was a week later. And I'm the only guy, eight years later. If He's you put, so proud of this. If you ask any of these executives, they go, that guy has one like three-year yeah. deal we're not going to renew. Was there a nickname for this group? Like the Brat Pack? Uh, the Rat Pack? The Brat Pack. The Scat Pack. <laughs> the way it's going. With the scatological humor. <laughs> the, uh, he, he always brought me, who would you believe were the last two? I go, if I was the last one standing they would have they would ask for a review <laughs> i go how the heck did this happen <laughs> technically i'm still standing just on the other side so funny 
so many great impressions, but you're a true movie lover, a true cinephile. So I want yeah. legitimate film conversation here. Let's there's, do it. I'm excited. I asked to be on this a while ago, and yes. I got this text from Ed, and I go, yes, yes, I'll do it, because I've been begging to be on here. I think this show's great. If you're around your car, tell your friend to drive around. It's an easy listen. Oh, man. Dan and Adnan, uh, they'll have your attention. They don't waste words. It's it's tremendous. These guys are really talented, so so listen to it. By the way, Max and Herc podcast going to continue. Yeah, Herc's a little set. feels like he's he's a little worried. But I say we should have this podcast in L.A. because that's where we could do it. So it may have some speed bumps, but we're going to keep churning it out, and I'll work on Herc to, you know, you know, to get out there at some point. Good. Way too many bozos like me. If you ask him, who's your favorite actor? You always get De Niro. You always get Pacino. Yours is number one's Pacino, right? Yeah. Okay. You're the only person I've ever met. And I said, who's your favorite actor? Your answer is? John Voight. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> but it should be no contest. Everyone should be saying this. <laughs> but to your point, I don't think enough people have seen Coming Home, for which you won an Academy Award. Not enough people remember Midnight Cowboy. Hoffman always gets the headlines. Yes. Not enough people remember Deliverance. And the you, champ. And yeah, this is going to say, you can go deeper. Why is Voight a great American actor in your opinion? I think John Voight, I think, and I'm not in the room, I think a lot of actors get roles and they, they play a certain role and they probably get offered things and go, I can't do that. And I've seen Al Pacino do it recently where yeah. he's taking those risks and I really think he's moving up there. Yeah. I would put Gene Wilder near the top of the list too. Gene Wilder, Ryan Gosling was once asked his favorite actor. He said Gene Wilder and it's not even close. Gene, I, almost, I watched Young Frankenstein again recently. It's unbelievable. Yeah, Peter Wilder's Sellers, great. Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder's right there. He's but when great. I look at John Voight, I just see a guy who goes, they'll say, can you do this? We want you to play, this is weird, man, John. We want you to play a, a Paraguayan boat captain. You're with J-Lo and Ice Cube. You're, I'll do it! <laughs> and then he's he does Anaconda. He's paying homage to Scarface in that, right? Because yeah, yeah. it has to be playing oh, yeah, he's like, the winking hey. nods to Tony Montana. Yeah, there's a great line when uh, J-Lo goes, snakes don't attack people. And then he has his face. He goes, oh, no, they don't. And he points to two scars on his face left by the snake. I just think he, he goes, he gets after it. Even the Ray Donovan. Ray uh, Donovan. There is a scene where he just, it's like he always keeps me guessing. There's a scene at the end of an episode where he's done all this, all of this, you know, illegal activity. And then at the end, he is smoking meth in a gay club <laughs> with these guys dancing. I'm like, what is going on? And I just, I love to being surprised by that. And I just think he, I just think he just loves to be a chameleon, and I really enjoy it. I know his political views, people don't see eye to eye. If you right. take that out, right. really look at the work. I think it's fantastic. You made that point, too, with Ted Nugent. You go, Listen, Ted Nugent, I, I, oh, are you going to stop listening to that baby? The, right. Political views are a little out there. Fine, but the music is the music. Stranglehold still yeah. kicks ass. I have to show you another Ted Nugent. Keep talking, I'll find <laughs> it. I forgot this one song about Ted Nugent. Well, you introduced me to Stranglehold, and Neil Everett is a big Nugent guy as well. He was so thrilled that I even had heard of the he song was, before. He was playing at New Haven, and I went down there to see, but there was a huge protest because of his gun thing, so I turned around and went home. I go, I ain't dealing with that. Sorry. People, you know how much I love Scorsese, and you have mocked Marty because you said, you know, the movies today are way too damn long, and you go, your boy is one of the biggest reasons why. Wolf of Wall Street doesn't need to be 250. Aviators Gangs of New long. York, Gangs good too Lord. Long. Aviators too long. So one of your favorite filmmakers, doesn't get enough love, John Carpenter. Yes. I People ask me what my favorite movie is, and I go, think of the movie I appreciate when it keeps coming on. It's very camp. It's Escape from New York. And I think when you look at comprehensive filmmaking, <laughs> the guy does he, – he does all the music. He composes the music on his keyboard, and he plays it. You know, Salt on Precinct 13, uh, The Fog, Escape from New York, Halloween – and I, I just think it's a, a true talent. He kind of lost his way a bit. I think most people do. It's hard to reinvent yourself over and again. But I just interesting subject matter. And 
just very tense movie making. And I, he had his favorite actors a lot, obviously, you know, Adrian Barbeau, and he was married to, and then Kurt Russell and a lot of guys. So I, I, I always, he has my undivided attention for those movies and the music's another. Yeah. I mean, I could say that I know he's not the most accomplished filmmaker and a guy who can weave in these storylines, but he gets you, turns them out, and you're very happy along your way. Your favorite movie maker? People don't realize too. You grew up in Australia. What age to what age? Like eight I was years? five years old yeah. till I was twelve. So I find with your movies, you have this definite Australian influence, which I think is a big reason why you appreciate Absolutely. George Miller. You appreciate and those Mad Max movies, how great they were. I, I challenge anyone. And another one, Mel Gibson, who yeah. you would question because of what he says. Right. If you look at him in those in the Road Warrior, the second Mad Max, and the Mad Max, the first one, you look at that face and you're like, what a superstar. <laughs> yeah. He just owns it and he's just cool. And it was so ahead of their time. It was so ahead of time they made a, a movie like it now and it did not stick out. It was, <laughs> right. it was ahead of, Peter Weir is another guy. Peter Weir, witness. Witness, um, Gallipoli. Have you yes. seen it? To me, oh, it's this movie. It was on the other day and it's just heart wrenching. It's about the Australian effort, World War One uh, in Gallipoli in Turkey. And how you see through these eyes, and Mel Gibson was in that movie. These Australian actors had no, these Australian uh, servicemen who had no idea what they were getting into, and then very quickly they realized they were in, in a war. And right. it, it's just taken to that innocence uh, when they didn't know it was going. They thought it was, hey, we're here for kind of a vacation, and then it hit them hard as a fist. But it was beautiful filmmaking, and again, Mel Gibson's weaved into all of this because he's American born, but you know, obviously Australian guy grew up there and mm-hmm. was a big part of. Pushing that movie making, and you look now, one out of every two leading men and women are Australian. Maybe I think there's too many Australians. I mean, we've got to hire American again. <laughs> uh, I know you also appreciate Anthony Hopkins. You can appreciate English movies. Yes, the Top- Bounty, my the, favorite the, Anthony Hopkins the, movie. How about Topsy Turvy? Topsy Turvy, excellent. Gilbert and Sullivan. Caught me off surprise. I didn't think I was going to like it. Right. Caught, caught me off guard. A beautiful little movie about the making of the Mikado. And what went into it? Gilbert and Sullivan, who did the Pirates of Penzance, they hit a rut. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, what are we going to do? And then they tried to reinvent themselves. And they came up with this piece on Japan, the Japanese culture, which seems like a big risk to English guys doing it. <laughs> and they made a huge hit. And just seeing that process and how the actors react to it was is a good look behind the curtain. Yes. And I think it was pretty accurate. So I, I really enjoyed it. Topsy Turvy. Jim Broadbent. Jim Broadbent. You once pointed out to me, you said Jim Broadbent is in every He's in single, every movie. In every he's the, they go. he's <laughs> in modern age Gene Hackman. <laughs> like, who can we get? Can we get Jim Broadbent? Is Jim Broadbent available? <laughs> I think we can get Broadbent. Uh, can one. we get a Jim Broadbent type? Why don't we get Jim Broadbent? Done. <laughs> Give me a little Peter O'Toole. Let me, oh, no, sorry. You got to tell me because people ask me all the time. They know how close we are. They go, hey, did Max date uh, Shirley Stewart? No. So here's the story of Shirley Stewart. Go ahead. Oh, wow. So Max and I knew in Miami, we worked at a hotel, and Charlize Theron was 16, 17-year-old model, and we kind of had to keep an eye. Uh, we were in charge of my friend Horetzi who did that. I tagged along. We went out a couple times to cl- bars and clubs, for, you know, underage, but we, we, she would experience that. <laughs> Didn't see her in ages, and then she becomes big. I moved to L.A., and then she uh, – two days in the Valley, was that Yeah, the, yeah, huge. That really pushed her through, and then I, I sought her out. We remember, hey, Max, and we kind of caught up and – we had a couple good stories. Uh, one great Charlize Theron story. It's not really about her. It's about me. <laughs> but I had a party. We had a, uh, we were watching a Delahoya fight. I had th- 25 people in my crappy little apartment. And then my friend Juan Carlos, who's better friends with Charlize and kind of like the liaison. He's to, a really good looking guy, right? He's way too good looking for his yeah. own good. So, and you know, usually I'm the best looking guy in the room and I have to take second fiddle to this guy. <laughs> so anyway, Charlize calls him, goes, Hey, we got two spots. It's like the big Playboy Mansion party. Do what you're doing. 
And my Juan Carlos comes to me and goes, hey, got to get rid of everyone. Playboy. He was my roommate then. He goes, Playboy <laughs> party. I go, I can't. Everyone's here. The fight hasn't even started. He goes, what do you want to do? He's looking at me. I'm going. I go, all right, all right, all right. So I go there. I pull the cable out of the box. Hey, the fight's gone. Everyone. And they're like, no. You, they saw me pull it out. Go, I'm kidding. Everybody out. I go, why do we have to leave? I go, everyone out. And I finally fessed up. And they're like, okay, why don't you say that in the first place? Right, people are understanding. Sure. Had a great time. Played Frogger with uh, <laughs> Jeffrey Rush. I uh, I was ye- yelling at a guy with Jack Nicholson because a guy took a photo of him uh, in a position. You know, I probably didn't want that out. And he goes, what are you doing? I go, and I go you can't do that. Yeah. I go, hey, Mr. Nicholson, you want me to get that g- camera? He goes, ah, that's no, fine. Let him have it. Nice. Nice. Awesome. I saw one ESPN, former ESPN employee, slightly oversurfed. We won't get into that. Yeah, you can tell them off camera. Just really quickly, I may have missed the beginning of that story. You dated Charlie No, Stone? I did not. No, no, no. People said that because I knew that. her. Correct. And she's been very supportive. We, I keep in t- I haven't talked to her in ages, quite frankly. But if I did, I've seen her a couple times here and there. It all comes back. But I've known her for... 25 years. Or something. Got it. I haven't so seen the last her. five or six. Cool. Yeah. No, 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 cool. Got it. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. It's so much easier to say that. Trust me. And get me some cred. When but, Max is now back in L.A., and if Charlize Theron was there, he walked over, she would immediately, Max, how are you? Great yes. to see you. And so so I knew her mom very well because they were South African. So we, I yeah. talked to her mom about cricket, you know, Australia, South Africa. and then Give me a South African accent. I, I think it's a b- tough Before one. you do that, have you seen Atomic Blonde? No. <laughs> All right. I will not. <laughs> Did you like it? Well, there's a good action sequence. Great action sequence on the staircase. Oh, I heard you talking about it. (laughs) Give me South African. It's like South African. Right. There's a great South African movie out there. It's called Stander. (laughs) It's about uh, the corruption of the South African soul. Would you please stop laughing? Uh, uh, What was the movie with uh, Morgan Freeman? (laughs) Invictus. What a pile of garbage that was. I look. No one likes Nelson Mandela any more than I do. He is a he is a legend. He is a hero to this country. But that movie was a little bit of Gary Player there. Gary Player, listen, Gary Player, this is how you do it. Look, so many times I'm watching the Masters and these people are hitting, bring out their wedge. They're right on the they're right on the crust of the green. Just butt it on there. Just save yourself a stroke at the very least. Just don't do that. And kids, 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 are you listening? Kids, don't eat junk food. It's bad for you. And the Coca Colas are very bad. (laughs) Two more. I want you to tell me the Connery story, <laughs> and then I want you to close with the Richard Burton, Liz Taylor. You know what I'm talking yeah. about. Give the Connery yeah. story first. The, uh, <laughs> you know the, the Burton one. You know. Give the All right. Story. Um, okay. So the word is really crappy golf course in L.A. And it's like a nine hole, I think. And then and then my friend is there, and he's like, he sees it. Goes, oh my god! I go, what? I go, it's Sean Connery. And I go, no way! Oh my god, it's Sean Connery. He's about forty yards away from us, just practicing by himself. And then my friend says, I got to go say something. I go, Nanny! I go, he's by himself for a reason. He probably wants to do he probably wants a quick nine hole. And, and my friend goes, oh, you're right. So a couple beats go by. And my friend goes, you know what? I'm gonna, I, I got to go say him. I'm like, all right. So I get creeped. I, I move up because I know this is going to end badly. So my friend goes, he goes, I'm, he goes, I'm going to give him the Zardoz line. He won't say that. <laughs> and he goes, Sir Sean Connery. And, and you already see him startled. I'm like, oh, sh- oh, shoot. And then he goes, uh, hey, I'm the biggest fan of you. I mean, I've seen everyone in your movies. I've even seen Zardoz. And I see Sean Connery still practicing his swing. And I go, looks up to my friend and says the following. I'd appreciate it if you respect my right to privacy. <laughs> that was followed by me falling on my back, throwing my... Well, was, I think it was a, a three wood because I was over teeing off. Like, ah! <laughs> I told you. 
I'd appreciate it. I'd appreciate it. He said it was very <laughs> paced. I will punch you in the stomach. Best yeah. movie clips ever. You showed me the Richard Burton, one of the all-time classics. Yes, the, the, the Connery you get the most love for, but I contend this. The best impression you do is Richard Burton. Right. If anybody knew Richard Burton, they know that era of acting. And you called someone as Richard Burton. They think I, I, I just, I played, <laughs> I, I played Hamlet at the Grove. I played Hamlet at the Grove. <laughs> to be or not to be, that is the question whether it is nobler to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. That is the question. That is the question. Wales forever. The, the burden is unbelievable. Yeah. And what, tell me about the interview with him and Elizabeth there was a, Taylor. There was this BBC show. This is, again, where I fell out of my chair laughing. Elizabeth Taylor is going on, and they're talking about you know her, her marriage to Richard Burton. And this is how you can tell he's such a good actor and a good listener. She goes, first of all, I mean, being with Richard's incredible. We get to work together in The Taming of the Shrew. And I... I one thing is to work with him, but to be married to one of the greatest actors of all time is incredible. And then Richard Burton goes, one off? <laughs> yes. Just busted. I got to find that special. I want to watch it again for that line because I, I was so, it was so oh. incredible. One off? This is incredible. So arrogant. So arrogant. I knew we would be friends. One of the first sports centers we did together. Uh, it was Brian McCann at Homeland, and I said, do the can, 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 and you go, please, no more Moulin Rouge references. <laughs> you knew it right away. Didn't miss a beat. And then you also, the other one, remember, you went, Hunter Pence, six pence, none the richer. And I go, why don't you just get rid of, why don't you say Hunter, six pence, none the richer? Save yourself a word or two. Or better yet, don't use that ever again. <laughs> I remember the first show we did together. Within minutes, you're like Bangladeshi. I go, no, I found this back. I did that to get a rise, right? And then on the air, you sit alongside Toronto Argonaut season ticket. It's like my first time on ESPN. And then you that just moved you right. No, but I remember afterwards, like as a as a big brother, you're like, hey man, I think you're really good. You go a little quick. He goes, but I like your energy. Did you I say that to you? Yeah. It was our first show. Yeah. This was literally my first three-hour show. And you go, no, I think you're pretty good, man. He goes, I, I, I a little think... quick. He goes, but I like your energy. You I got say a, good... a little quick? You don't forget quick. anything, do you? Yeah, he goes, a little quick. He goes, but good energy, and I like I like your man. Smells like whiskey. <laughs> a little quick. <laughs> um, But I think I dragged you to my level a bit, which is a dangerous place to be if you're here. We would get you in trouble because they yeah. go, listen, when you and, and Max are together, I go, what does that mean? They go, that's... They you want to tell that story? We have time. <laughs> sure, go ahead. <laughs> so there's this article I think on Awful announcing, and it said Max Brown's Adnan Verk. This pairing's great. I mean, they had it fun and that. And then we said we hadn't worked together in like six months. I, well, we had. We, I'm sorry, that's not. We hadn't worked there, so we bring it to the talent office. And go, hey, this article. You see it? Great. Didn't work together again for another year and a half. <laughs> they just said so they basically saw that. No, it's not happening. I asked Ben Koo, who runs off on us. Do you remember the headline was the most unlikely sports center duo ever? Because we were doing a they're Saturday a one push. Yeah. And they go, these guys are terrific. They got great chemistry. They're really funny. We've never seen them before because we were always on ESPN <laughs> News. So it was a rare time someone saw us. And they go, no, no, you guys had way too much fun. Like, we <laughs> want bigger than we, we don't, be, we shan't be having any of that. We got to stomp that out of here. So, yeah. And Brett Oss, ESPN, Max and Herc podcast. Oh, and Instagram. Instagram. Drop Instagram. I do a lot of, uh, risque photos for, for anyone who's interested and, uh, just put repost a lot of stuff that aired on. Maybe Peter earlier. Peter Tool to close, which is another good one you do. <laughs> He's always drunk in his movies. He's always drunk. <laughs> West End. That sounds too much like Richard Patton. <laughs> if you think I'm overserved, wait to see Oliver Reed. <laughs> he just left. He just left the bar. <laughs> Moments before taking the stage. 
Peter O'Toole and Venus. Like, it's just, well, oh. why, why did he get nominated for that? He's just playing Peter O'Toole. He didn't look so hot at the end. <laughs> Max Bredos, always hot. Thanks, brother. <laughs>
52 times, and he does the score for Deer Basketball. It's listed here at six minutes. Maybe it's five and a half with the credits as well. But it's literally just a poem of Kobe Bryant, and it's uh, drawn to life by veteran animation director Glenn Keane. I liked it. thought it was very good. I don't know if I watched it, Dan, and said, that's going to win an Oscar. But at the hell, it's Kobe. Yeah, I think his voice, because he narrates it too, I think his voice and stature really elevated it in terms of everyone viewing it and thinking it was very good. I, I like the use of color. You only see color when it's the jerseys. I thought that was nice. The music, as you mentioned, is a great tone setter by John Williams. I mean, I, I guess it's probably the front runner to win. I don't know if it was my favorite. I'm a big Kobe guy. Right. But if he does win, am I supposed to ask him about the Me Too movement? Yeah, you are going to be there. You're going to be in the media room. You're going to be the only guy that only go get this guy here. I'm like, what do you mean? He's, he has a credential. He can ask about it. Kobe can say no comment. It's fine. We all remember what happened in Colorado. If you do it, that would be tremendous. Do your basketball, Ricky? As um friend of the show, Scott Feinberg, you tweeted out he has that tr- uh, tremendous interview with Willem Dafoe on his show, so kind of cross-promotion there. Sorry. Nice. Um, no, the best question he asked him, he said, uh, do you think Marty was influenced to cast you as Jesus Christ in Last Temptation of Christ after the death-like scene in Platoon? And Dafoe said, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't, he goes, all I know is they went through a lot of people. Aiden Quinn was originally going to play Jesus, and then, of course, funding was taken away because of you know all this other stuff. But Yes, Scotty did a great job with Defoe and Feinberg, big on the Criterion Collection. You were all over the 50% off. He bought like 20 DVDs. Good for him. Um, but back on that, his guest before this, a documentarian, I, I forget his name off the top of my head, but, uh, he asked about the, the influence of, of documentary films and how New York, LA really plays into that. And LA being obviously where Kobe played his entire career and they were getting a lot of push. That might be the reason why it wins is because it has an actual affection of, of Los Angeles where a majority of the Oscar voters do live. Yeah. So while it may not be the best short, it's probably going to win. And it, it really was. It's a, I give it three and a half. I believe it's all hand drawn. So it's old school animation a la Beauty and the Beast, which Keen did direct before, which was the first animated film to be nominated for best picture back in 92. So that really broke molds there. So you have that little bit of uh, legacy going on with with Deer Basketball. So it gives it that boost. But probably the number three or number four best short uh, of the five. I like Negative Space a lot. I'm always a good sucker for a good father and son story. Very sweet story about Sam's father. Hardly ever at home. He's off and away on business trips. So he's able to connect with his son by teaching him how to pack a suitcase. Five-minute anime short. Very nicely done. Revolting Rhymes is the longest one. It's almost 30 minutes. It's the wolf from the fairy tale Little Red Riding Hood telling true and twisted stories of adventures involving Snow White, Cinderella, and Jack. The film based on the much-loved rhymes written by Roald Dahl, who's clearly a very demented guy. I, I liked it, but I don't. I can't see it winning the Academy Award. Sometimes it's just a little bit uh, irreverent is probably the right word I'm looking for. But I did enjoy it. I thought it was fun. Uh, so those are the five there. Uh, Dan or Rick, any thoughts on those other three? You skipped right over Lou, Disney oh, Pixar. Lou. I thought you were a company man. Lost and found. Awesome. A very sweet story. Schoolyard bully. Yes. Gets his comeuppance. Typical Pixar. Very sweet. Very well done. Live action shorts. Again, I think they cut to the chase at a pretty good pace. I mean, this is the thing. You don't have much time with these things. I, I did a goldderby.com. You check out. I did a Google Hangout with Tom O'Neill and Chris Beecham. And Tom O'Neill, who runs the site, he he thought a lot of these were pretty weak. But I said, well, the one that's the favorite to win is DeKalb Elementary, which is about a mentally unstable guy. I didn't think that was particularly strong. He's holding a woman captive. Uh, obviously school shootings are very much in, in a hot topic right now and for good reason. Uh, but there just wasn't much meat on the bone here. I know it's a live action short. It's 21 minutes, but there wasn't a whole lot to it. The one that I really, the two that I really liked that stood out for me, one is the 11 o'clock, which I thought uh, that's my favorite of the five. A psychiatrist earnestly tries to help his delusional patient, but his efforts are complicated by the fact the patient believes himself to be the doctor. 
with each trying to out-analyze the other. The session spirals out of control. Australian film. Perfect for a short. 12 minutes. It's funny. It's clever. Good twist. I'm like, that's exactly what I'm looking for in a good short. I told my friends after the, after the screening, I may have even said it during the screening when the credits were rolling. I said, this is what happens when an intelligent person or a scholar rewrites who's on first. It's essentially what it was. It, it was a yeah. retelling of the classic Abbott and Costello bit, who's on first. It just, it's snap neck dialogue, keeps going back and forth. The whole question and answer, the, the word association game yeah. they play with each other. We're just done because it's just constantly going and we're losing it laughing. If you want my notes, oh. the 11 o'clock, a psychiatrist meets with a patient who thinks he's a psychiatrist. Some elements of who's on first. Yes, it was in the notes as well. Uh, and the one I really loved a lot, too, uh, probably my second favorite, was The Silent Child. Libby, a profoundly deaf four-year-old, the youngest child in a family, all hearing, unable to communicate but about to start school. Libby's assigned a social worker who teaches her sign language. Uh, Libby's skeptical parents are reluctant to be involved, however, and pose a potential block to Libby's education. I thought it was really beautifully done. Uh, the scroll in particular is very powerful, talking about how many children are hard of hearing and don't get the support and the education that they need. And if they don't get that support... Uh, things oftentimes become very awry for them and the importance of sign language. And the parents are just saying, well, just teach her to talk. I mean, just, you know, whatever the counseling is. It's like, well, no, like she may never talk again. This is why sign language is so critical. And if you learn sign language, she can live a wonderful life. She can do anything that any person who does not have this ailment can do, but the parents just don't seem to understand that. So that's not only, I thought, a really good film, but a very important film as well. So that one I really enjoyed as well. The other one I thought was okay, uh, Watuwate, All of Us, the hijacking on the bus, and my nephew Emmett. Uh, They're both fine, didn't think particularly exemplary. Last one of the shorts to discuss, the best documentary shorts. Of the three categories of shorts, I thought these ones were the most mixed bad. The animations were really strong, live action pretty good. These ones either really good or really like, huh? And I asked Tom O'Neill and Chris Beecham, how do they on Gold Derby recognize who the favorites are? Because Edith and Eddie is the favorite, and I said I didn't think it was very strong. It's um, about a 96-year-old Edith Hill, 95-year-old Eddie Harrison, married, unconcerned. One is African-American, the other is white. The newlyweds are forced to part, however, when one of Edith's daughters, unhappy about the relationship, forces her mother to leave her Virginia home and move to Florida. Tom was hilarious. He goes, God, it takes forever to get to the point, huh? <laughs> I said, it's only 40 minutes. It's from Laura Checkaway, who apparently, as Chris Beecham told me, has been very active on the campaign circuit. He goes, normally, these directors or producers that do the shorts, you don't really see them get much pub. He goes, but she's been everywhere. He goes, if you wanted her for an hour on Cinephiles, you'd be like, whatever you need. Like, if it was a third grader in Anchorage, you're like, sure, whatever you guys need. So he goes, listen, a lot of this is just campaigning. And I've seen Laura everywhere. And Edith Eddy is about interracial marriage. And it's about a couple of old people. And it's sweet. And so he goes... I think that's the one that's going to win. And I said, well, I didn't think it was a very good documentary. He's like, yeah, but that really doesn't matter sometimes. The one that I love is Heaven is a Traffic Jam on the 405. Speaking of L.A., Tom and Chris both pointed out some voters will just see 405 and vote for that. Like, all right, L.A., great. I look for and, and Tom, again, his issue with this one is it takes too long to get to the point. It's 40 minutes and at about the 20, 25-minute mark, okay, I get what this is about now. And the tagline of the movie says her art saved her life. He goes, it's too long to get to that point. I disagree with him. I thought it was great from start to finish. Um, but it's a great title, which she agreed. Heaven is a traffic jam on the 405. Frank Stiefel is the director. Artist Mindy Alper has spent almost all of her 56 years combating severe depression and anxiety using medication, electroconvulsive therapy, and psychiatry to help her. Art has always been her most effective outlet with drawing and sculpture, offering the tools to give voice to her fears and mental battles. That theme is one that I love. Crumb is my favorite documentary, and that's, again, about a guy who seems to find art to be therapeutic. That's his outlet uh, amidst dealing with tremendous family dysfunction. 
And in this case, Mindy is the one who is specifically dealing with all these issues. One of the first opening scenes, she shows you all the different pills she's taking. I mean, your heart goes out to her. This person's clearly very damaged. Her speech is very slow and deliberate. Um, but then later the film reveals that she's actually made a really strong living as an artist. When you find out the upbringing she had and the tyrannical father she had, my heart goes out to her. And I thought it was a really powerful film. And to me, again, that's a good documentary short. Slice of Life, told in short form. I thought it was excellent. Those guys told me the, the winner's either going to be Edith Reddy, probably, but maybe Heaven is a Traffic Jam on the 405. So of those lesser categories, so to speak, I would be thrilled uh, if she ends up winning. Heroin, I thought, was fine. Uh, Mark Simon, a big fan of I think it might be on Netflix. Uh, it's about Huntington, West Virginia, overdoses from heroin. I thought it was okay. Obviously, very timely topic with uh, all the issues about drugs right now affecting smaller communities. Knife Skills was interesting. This is about a restaurateur in Cleveland. Shout out to Ohio Passmore who staffs his restaurant primarily with men and women recently released from prison. And he gives them six weeks to learn the skills that will better their lives, propel the new venture to success. This is what I'm sure Michael Moore would love because he's often talks about, you know, the prison system and how it's just overwhelmed and it's not actually helping to rehabilitate people. And so I thought knife skills was very interesting. The fact that these people released, they give them a, a crash course and you see these inmates, guys who went to prison for aggravated assault or whatever it was. And he's like, Oh yeah, my mom used to always cook. I've always kind of liked cooking. Great. And all of a sudden you see the guy, he's like a sous chef. Like it's, it's, it's a wonderful story. And um, I think the one's very powerful. And then traffic stop as well. Traffic stop is on HBO. I saw that on HBO go. This is unbelievable. Like if you, it, it brings to mind the Rodney King video, 26 year old African American elementary school teacher, Breon King pulled over by a white police officer for a routine traffic stop. The incident escalated into a violent arrest followed by a conversation about race in America between King and another white officer. It is jarring when you see the video of her and what this guy, it's just manhandles her. And uh, it's unfortunate and troubling that there hasn't been much resolution to it. I'm watching the documentary. She she gets caught for speeding. Okay, fine. And she's not resisting arrest. She's just kind of just, you know, being a little bit... Um, well, standoffish. And the guy just grabs her and throws her to the ground. Like, oh my God. Like, thank, thank God this was caught on video so people could do this. And yet, he's still a cop. He's still working in Florida. Like, it's unbelievable these things happen. And then that conversation she has with the other white police officers. She says, oh, do you think there's racist cops? He goes, well, yeah. She goes, well, how do you know who the racist cops are, the ones who are not? He's like, well, I think it goes both ways. I think the black community doesn't like white police officers. And they start going back and forth a little bit. So it was an interesting dialogue just about race in America. And obviously, uh, that issue of police brutality is one that is very important and one that people will continue to talk about. Those are all the shorts. Once again, thanks to Shania for hooking me up. Live action, documentary, and animation. He's just an average man with an average life. And his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost, playing to my strength. Dan Stanzik is. I thought it was a little, little much. Every, Every man. man. By the way, that, that is from your review of three billboards talking about Sam Rockwell. I thought it was a little much. Yeah, I don't know. Randy, I don't know if I like that. I think he's open. Mocking I think you. he's mocking me. Yeah. Colbert had Rockwell on last night and he asked him about that. He said, listen, there's some, some backlash here. The fact your character is a virulent racist. He's like, uh huh. And he goes, in the ending of Three Billboards, he feels like he's redeemed. Like, people are like, well, what the hell? This guy's brutal. And so Rockwell goes, listen, I don't think he's redeemed. He goes, that last shot him and McDormand in the car, he goes, they're about to go do something else bad. So it's not like all of a sudden he's seen the light. And it's not like he's a hero of the character. He's, you know, I, I don't feel like he's redeemed by the enemy. Colbert's like, all right, just throwing it out there. If Three Billboards doesn't win Best Picture, that's probably the biggest reason why people don't like his character in that ending, which you mentioned there in your opening. And he's still going to win for Best Supporting. That, that is a lock. He's going to win for Supporting, yeah. Okay, so the premise of this is what? So you are you are the every man of the podcast. So when I get highfalutin talking about live action shorts, 
and Passmore starts talking about animation and how great uh, loving Vincent is. You're the one who's going to tell us about Enemy of the State and why that film should have won Best Okay, Picture. I don't know if I picked the right movie to start this segment with, but here I mean, we this go. Is, this is be like the great outdoors, but I, I want something that people can appreciate. Midnight in Paris was right, written sure. and directed by Woody Allen, who has something of a sordid past that's being revisited in the wake of the Me Too movement. But as the everyman, I am able to separate the art from the artist. Okay. This movie was thought to be a light, breezy, surface-level comedy starring Owen Wilson, something of an everyman himself. <laughs> that is an excellent way of saying it. Owen Wilson has a busted-up nose. He is not leading man quality, but he's a good actor. But it is actually a sensible, layered social commentary with a timeless message about nostalgia. Owen Wilson plays a successful Hollywood screenwriter trying to rework his first novel while spending time in Paris with his fiance, played by Rachel McAdams. Every evening, Wilson walks the streets of the City of Light and shortly after midnight gets called into an antique car and transported back in time to the 1920s. There, he meets and speaks with the likes of Zelda and F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, Pablo Picasso, Cole Porter, Salvador Dali, T.S. Eliot, and even gets Gertrude Stein to read his manuscript. Listen, you had me a Gertrude Stein. Go ahead. Kathy Bates, I'm pretty sure. Right? <laughs> Kathy Bates, awesome. Uh, Wilson's character is mesmerized by this alternate reality. He deems Paris in the 1920s to be the golden age of art, and he soon falls hard for Picasso's mistress, played by the sultry Marianne Cotillard. Good use of sultry. Who stands out from among the standout cast. One night, as the two of them are strolling through the streets, they are beckoned to a carriage and transported to the late 1890s. It's like a scene out of Inception, which is particularly reminiscent because of Cotillard. Her character is obsessed with Paris at the turn of the century. To her, that's the golden age. They end up at a party among the famous artists of that era, like Gauguin and Degas, and as Wilson tries to convince Cotillard to go back to the 20s, he realizes what most of us don't. Nostalgia is just the denial of the painful present. The notion that someone was born too late or that someone would be happier in the past is an illusion. We glorify the past and talk about golden ages, but no one remembers or points out the bad stuff. Living in a simpler time may seem romantic, but how would you handle life without cell phones and the internet? This, right now, is the time we live in. Everyone thinks the present is dull and a little unsatisfying, but in 20 years we'll all look back and truly appreciate the mountain of great art that was produced, and hopefully this movie is close to the summit. Yeah, all right. The Everyman, Midnight in Paris. Hemingway, unbelievable in the movie. Who wants to fight? That guy's awesome. I want to find out who that actor is. We gotta get him on Cinephile. Very well done. So, Midnight in Paris, a movie. Listen, very much fitting with the Dan Stanzik aesthetic. You're a writer. It's about a writer. You love the 1920s. You're a big fan of the jazz era. <laughs> I could see you loving Picasso. Like that. That look. What era would you like to revisit? None. I like that. I think that's my point is that everyone thinks it'd be cooler to live way back when. Right. I'm such a present day guy. Like, was everyone in the future is, then? No. I mean, maybe. So you're either present or future. You would never want to go yeah, backwards. Never. Because I would always have loved to have been alive in the 70s. Just for, just for Marty. Like, I just want to be able to watch this movie. But you're right. I mean, like, race relations for a guy like me in 1976, not as strong as 2018. Good stuff there. That is the Everyman Dance Dance. Midnight in Paris, which I'm sure is available on HBO, Netflix. Check it out. If you've never seen it, he's right. It's an excellent movie. Now with Woody Allen, the Me Too movement, I know. I don't know if people don't want to revisit his films, but it is an excellent film. And it would involve basically a rebirth for Woody because he obviously had such success early in his career with Andy Hall Manhattan. Won, won the Oscar, Oscar yeah. for a screenplay, which he hadn't done in a long time. That is the Everyman.
All right. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. Like I said, the next time we will be talking to all of you, Dan and I will be at the Kodak Theater. We'll have walked the red carpet. Our man Ben Lyons is going to hook us up. All my predictions, goldderby.com. Go to Experts Picks. As my friend Max Bredos was just asking me off air, what's going to win Best Picture? It's either going to be Shape of Water or Three Billboards. Nobody dislikes Shape of Water. They're saying it's probably about number two or number three in their rankings. And for Three Billboards, either people love it or they're polarizing and they don't like the fact Rockwell's character gets somewhat redeemed. But... I will predict three billboards wins best picture because it won the Screen Actors Guild Award and it won the BAFTA, which is there's nothing British about three billboards. If a movie about middle America is winning the BAFTA, then I feel like it's got enough momentum to win best picture. Shape of Water will win for director. It'll win for score and those other categories. A very good uh, analogy or comparison Chris Beecham made of Gold Derby because it's kind of like Life of Pi. Life of Pi won for director Ang Lee. It won for other minor categories, but Best Picture did not win. That's what I foresee happening. Three Billboards wins picture. Del Toro wins director. Absolute lock. And the acting category is very straightforward. McDormand, Ullman, Rockwell, Janney. Original screenplay is a fun one. If you want a fun category, because it looked like Lady Bird, now it's not going to be Lady Bird. Three Billboards, it's going to win Best Picture. McDonough's going to win, and he wasn't nominated for director. But Get Out won the Writers Guild Award, and Get Out might win for Best Original Screenplay. The one award it'll win, Jordan Peele. That's a, one of the tightest races going right now. Adaptive Screenplay is a fait accompli. James Ivory for Call Me By Your Name. Thanks, as always, to listening to Cinephile. We'll see you next time at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.